Good afternoon, and welcome to Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. I am Joe Works from Fairlawn, New Jersey today, uh, in the process of moving to Elmira, New York, but today I'm in uh, Fairlawn, New Jersey. Joining me today is Jeff Smelser and uh, Chase Byers. Hi, Hi, Chase. Oh, how's it going, Joe? Just fine yourself. Doing really well. Happy to be here. Good, good. Hi, Jeff. Hey, good afternoon, guys. And so this afternoon, we're going to talk about God's plan, God's will for marriage. Pretty broad topic, and so I'm sure that anybody who's listening will have some uh, comments uh, or questions, and we certainly welcome those uh, during our 45 minutes uh, of discussion, Bible discussion this afternoon. Um, want to try to focus this afternoon on really understanding what God's will is. Because of that, one of the things that I will mention at the beginning is that we don't want to get into a lot of hypothetical situations or what ifs or, or you know, uh, those sorts of, of things. We want to focus on just what God's word said about the, the topic and uh, uh, Really, we just wouldn't have time to deal with all of those kinds of situations. Uh, I can only speak for myself, but I'd be happy to talk to people more afterward uh, about that. Um, if you'd like to uh, contact me privately, that would be very fine in, in my mind. So when we think about God's will for marriage and the the emphasis on on that, God's plan, God's will for marriage, I think that's a really important thing to consider in this day and age because the definition of marriage and the plan for marriage is changing. It seems like almost on a weekly basis Mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, you know, our culture is, is shifting and and thoughts are, are changing about what constitutes marriage. What is a good marriage? You have thoughts about that, Jeff? Yeah, very much so. I, I, it's interesting that when we when we start talking about marriage, we're start we're talking about something that we see from the very beginning of the Bible. We go back to the book of Genesis, and when man creates, uh, when man is created, when God creates the man and then he creates the woman, the very immediate thing that we're presented with is their union. They're becoming one flesh, marriage. And as we go throughout the Bible, uh, one of the things I'm sure we're going to be talking about is is how God uses that relationship between a man and a woman to represent the relationship between God and his people. So it's a very profound relationship. It's something that's designed by God, created by God. And yet today, it's almost meaningless. People live together and debate whether they not they want to get married. Maybe they decide to get married. They get tired of it. They walk away from it. Uh, we re- in our culture in the United States of America, we have men marrying men, women marrying women, uh, men marrying women, but not staying married to them, uh, chasing after other women. Marriage has become largely meaningless to many people. And it's a, it's, you know, there's an expression I grew up hearing, a crying shame. Exactly. Chase thoughts. Yeah. I was going to say along those lines, one of the common phrases that's getting slipped into our culture and while it's big in our culture, but, sadly, is getting slipped into the church, I think, is the idea of love is love. You hear that all the time. Love is love. It doesn't matter who it is or, or what they are. Love is love. And if you love them, you should be able to marry them. And in a lot of ways, but especially in marriage, we're moving further away from what 
God says and what he wants. And we make it more about what we want. Um, and so I, I'm excited to talk about that today, what God wants for marriage. And to, again, let's encourage our viewers to join us, send your comments by means of the Facebook comment section or by means of the Bible Quest Zoom app. We'd love to hear from you. So one of the things I want to, to mention here in, in that regard of what we were discussing there, uh, one of the things I've heard more and more recently is that when we, if we're going to talk about God's plan for marriage, we have to understand that that was a that the Bible was written for a specific culture of people. The Old Testament was written to the Israelites. Uh, the New Testament, you know, it's 2,000 years old. That doesn't really fit our culture. Uh, and so that was fine for their culture, but we need something different. And I would just want to uh, amen your comment there, Jeff, that when we talk about God's will for marriage, trying to emphasize that God is the one who has the right to decide that. And it wasn't a culture question. If you think about Genesis, the second chapter, when marriage is first introduced in scriptures from almost the very beginning, culture do you call that? Is that the Garden of Eden culture or what? It, it, those, are, those are instructions that are given for mankind. Exactly. Uh, it. You, you, have, you have marriage in Genesis chapter 2. And as you say, what culture is that? That's the first two people who are the parents of us all. And then thousands of years later, we have Paul in a letter to Gentiles, the, the book of Ephesians, quoting what was said in Genesis 2 uh, as the principle that, that he's teaching then. So, okay, wait a minute. Jesus talks to Jews. Paul writes to Gentiles. Both of them quote something that was said thousands of years ago to the parents of everybody. This is not culture specific. Exactly. And I don't know, you, you may have mentioned it. I just didn't hear you. But uh, Jesus speaking to Jews, Matthew, the 19th chapter, he's quoting the Genesis 2 uh, as well. That's exactly right. Thanks. Yeah, I was just going to say, and that's just an amazing thing when you just sit back and think about that. Uh, somebody who might not be a regular Bible reader uh, might not know that, that something that is talked about throughout the entirety of scriptures is something that should be of the utmost importance. And the fact that marriage is something that existed all the way from the very, very beginning, and it's talked about throughout the entire history of the Bible, that should be a fascinating thing, and it should wake us up, and we should want to know more about that. Um, and as you guys are pointing out, it's important. It's an important thing. If, if, if we could, we've mentioned this, but let's take a moment to read these passages that we're talking about in, in, in Genesis chapter two, when God creates the man or creates the woman from the rib from Adam's side. And he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Then the text says, and this is the writer representing what this is God's word. But this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and they shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Thousands of years later, in the book of Matthew, uh, which describes Jesus talking with Jews, and they're wanting to know about divorce, uh, and whether it's lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause, Jesus quotes that. Verse 5, Matthew 19. He said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
And then Mark gives an account of that. And we often think that we see evidence. Mark was especially written for the benefit of Romans. And we have the same story, the same passage quoted by Jesus. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul, writing to Gentiles, says in verse 31, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Exactly. Uh, and you find those those references sprinkled in other places as well. Let me mention one more in Malachi, the second chapter. And just to understand that we have to keep coming back to this foundation. If we're going to, to have any sort of, of, of good marriage, uh, we, we have to, to have an acceptance. God has the right, because he is the creator, to establish what marriage is and, uh, and how it ought to uh, be viewed. In Malachi, the second chapter, Malachi is dealing with ungodly men and the problems that they have been causing and uh, just pick up in verse uh, 13, the second thing you do, you cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. For what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yes, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Verse 15, but did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none of you deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. So the idea of him making them one, the, the two becoming one flesh, uh, that statement in, uh, in verse 15 there. But did he not make them one? Uh, you know, I, I think that's a reference going back to when God instituted marriage. That, that has been his plan for one man, one woman for life. Um, and when we begin to, to just say, well, that was culture, we're ignoring all this evidence. Now, someone can come along and say, well, I just don't believe there's a God, or I don't believe that the Bible is inspired, and, and those would be different topics. If you accept that the Bible is the Word of God, then you can't just say what God says about marriage doesn't matter. Or you can't say that it doesn't apply to me, and you can't say, well, God just wants me to be happy. Uh, God wants you to be holy. He wants you to be dedicated to his word, and in order to know what he thinks about marriage, we need to read his word. We've got some comments from some of our viewers. Um, there's one comment I'm not sure. I may have missed the connection. The viewer, maybe one of you guys will recognize what he's alluding to. Uh, somewhere along the line, we said something to which a viewer responded, how would you view Sodom and Gomorrah? Then how, and, and let me read it verbatim. Then how would you view Sodom and Gomorrah? Um, not sure what connection that is. Do you know what he's connect, what, where he's, to what he's responding or? Hmm. I am sorry, I do not. Well, you know, but um, how would we view Sodom and Gomorrah? I guess maybe, I, I'll take a guess. So maybe, I'll tell you what, let's do this. Let's ask our viewer who sent that comment in to tell us exactly what connection he's uh, getting at there. Um, view Sodom and Gomorrah regard what? Maybe it was in regard to um, the, the same principle across different cultures, and then here's Sodom and Gomorrah, which seems to go a different direction. Maybe that yeah. was... But, but if that viewer will chime back in with a clarification, we can get to that. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I was going to mention that 
passages like the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and their uh, perversion of God's will in regarding sexual things uh, and marriage and everything else, um, that would help us to understand the, the, the fallacy of God just wants me to be happy. You know, okay, so our viewer comes back, he says, culture-wise. So I think the idea was we were saying what we see about marriage is, is not culture-specific. It's universal. And yet maybe his point is in Genesis chapter 19, we see a picture of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, specifically in the city of Sodom, where there are people, uh, men, wanting to have relations with visitors who are angels but who they perceive to be men. And um, it, it's a homosexual relationship they're seeking. And so maybe the question is, well, here's something different. And, of course, what we see is because it was not only different, but it was wrong, the God who is the God of us all and the creator of us all destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. And so what we see is a principle that was established from creation and is, it is taught across all cultures um, marriage, one woman and one man, and then we see perversions of that, aberrations that come along. And rather than God saying, well, if that's what your culture wants to do with this, that's okay, God holds them accountable. There were things God did tolerate. God tolerated divorce in the Old Testament to some extent. He did tolerate men having multiple wives to some extent. But that, as Jesus says, it was not so from the beginning. And then when we get to the New Testament, Jesus brings us back to God's original plan. Right. Yeah. And I think that that question of Sodom and Gomorrah um, might also think about the, the seven Canaanite nations, uh, which uh, the Israelites ended up defeating during the time of, of Joshua. Uh, they lived by a different standard. They had their culture, if you will, but it was unacceptable to God. And Leviticus, the 18th chapter, tells us, that that is why God was going to vomit them out of the land was mm -hmm. because they had violated uh, his will in establishing their own cultures. And it's kind of where we're getting with in our society today, just to think only about America maybe for a moment, but it would be true about many other nations, uh, developing a culture that is counter to God's will. Uh, and so we will find ourselves uh, you know, as, as a nation, um, going a, against what God wants, being displeasing in his sight, what he ends up doing with that, I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but we certainly have a lot of scriptures that show that as nations depart from his culture, particularly in regard to idolatry and sexual immorality, they don't last long. Yeah, and I uh, Charles goes on to say, so that debunks the culture thing, and I think that's exactly right. Another way, just to kind of put this, that I think you guys are talking about, is the idea of generational truths. You know, depending on what generation it is, that's what determines what truth is. And until we come back to a common truth and a common standard, these conversations are really pointless and useless. Um, and so I would reiterate what Joe said. What we're talking about is coming at this from a biblical standpoint. And if you believe in the Bible, you need to be willing to accept what God's word says about this. You know, we talked a little bit about, we just touched on the idea that a nation can go awry and it's not good for the nation. And it's not good for the nation. It's destructive to the nation when a culture uh, that characterizes a nation departs from God's will concerning marriage. 
but it's destructive for the nation because it's destructive uh, of the of the family nucleus. A nation is made up of not just people, but it's it's the family, the father and the mother raising up children that become the next generation that really be- that creates a nation. And maybe we should spend a few minutes here just focusing on why it is not just beneficial for a whole nation, it is, but why it's beneficial in each family unit that, that we follow God's plan for marriage. We are of a generation, we, are of an, we live in an age in which it's been popular to say there are all different kinds of families. Families come in all different sizes and stripes and forms, and our kids watch Sesame Street where they are taught that families can be any kind of arrangement. And yes, there are single-parent households and mothers who do the best they can to raise their children without a father, a husband in the home. And yes, there are fathers uh, in similar situations. And yes, there are uh, families where the children are adopted rather than being born biologically. And, And that's wonderful when we can take in children into a home and raise them up where they would not have had a home otherwise. But none of that negates the point that for things to work ideally, God's plan for marriage is is not only beneficial, but ideal. And maybe we could spend a few minutes just talking about the value of a man and a woman coming together in marriage, committed for life, loving one another, and raising up children in that environment and how beneficial that is to the children's sense of self-esteem, security, uh, aspirations for what they want to be when they grow up. Um, Maybe we should talk about those things for a few minutes. Well, I think it's exactly right. And the passage that I mentioned earlier, I didn't go into any detail about that, but in Malachi 2, it's not just whether it is a man and a woman who are are married, but it's how they are treating one another. Um, uh, you know, here you had the, the man who was dealing treacherously with his wife, the, the wife of his of, of covenant. Um, but one of the statements that he makes in that rebuke, Malachi 2.15, is that what God is seeking after is godly offspring, um, raising up a generation that loves the Lord, uh, that is seeking to be pleasing to, to him. Godly offspring. That needs to be our ultimate goal. Raising up a generation that loves the Lord. So one of the things that um, we see, you know, throughout the book of Proverbs, you see. Jeff, yeah, Jeff yeah. sorry. I think maybe there's some feedback off of your computer from the Facebook or something, maybe. Oh, okay. All right. I'll see if I can get rid of that real quick. Go ahead. Okay. I think you took care of it. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's okay. I like listening to Joe twice. (laughs) One of the things we see in the book of Proverbs is um, a father instructing his son in wisdom and a mother who has influence. And you see this from first to last in the book of Proverbs. Um, I'm just going to hit a few highlights here, flipping over to the book of Proverbs in my Bible. And going to Proverbs chapter 1, and you have in verse 8, Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. So right off the bat, here is a a son who's benefiting from hearing his father and his mother, and they're on the same page. And multiple times throughout the book of Proverbs, we see 
passages about fathers and mothers and influencing their children. Um, we get to the end of the book of Proverbs, the very last chapter, and we talked about this on a webcast recently, but uh, there's this picture of a household where a man has sought a woman who is a worthy woman, and it describes what she means to the household, and it says in verse 28, her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and he praises her, saying, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. How often in today's culture, where we hear about families that have been broken up by divorce, where we have children growing up with a a stepmother they live with and their biological mother they go spend a weekend with, or a stepfather they live with and a biological father they go and spend a weekend with. And then you have these people getting together at Thanksgiving time and we're coming up on Thanksgiving. What's the, what is the common um, comment about Thanksgiving family gatherings that we constantly hear these days. Well, there, there's contentions. Is that what you're talking Contention. about? Yeah. Uh, that is as often as not when I hear about people talking about family get togethers in the popular media and whatnot, it's a disparaging remark about why, Oh, going to have to get through family, get, get through Thanksgiving with all the family gathered and all the arguments and arguments okay. of various sorts from politics to, uh, just can't get along to, you know, personal spats. and With the outlaws. What? With the outlaws? Yeah. And, the in-laws and, and outlaws. And that's, that's not the picture that you see in a godly household. That's not the picture that you see in the book of Proverbs. That's not the picture that you see in Proverbs 31. I would submit that one of the reasons what we're hearing about and seeing in today's society and why it's a different picture than what we're reading about in the Bible in these passages where people are following God's plan is because they're they're households where marriage, uh, as God defined it, has not been honored, and people have violated their marriage vows, and they've not esteemed marriage, and so the children don't grow up in an environment where they have a sense of security, who their parents are, and that's the way it's going to be, and that they don't have to worry about mommy or daddy running off with somebody else, um, there's a lack of stability, and that leads to lack of not only security, but a lack of self-esteem on the part of the children. And so, you know, bad things happen when we don't follow God's plan. Yeah. And so, Jeff, what you're describing here, in a hypothetical family that is experiencing all of those things, once you get to the Thanksgiving dinner table, there's no surprise that it's like that. Because right. we're getting away from God's plan. Right, right. Yeah. And so when we look at even through the scriptures, uh, sometimes even good people um, who have made some serious mistakes in this regard, think about Abraham and Sarah, uh, you know, introducing Hagar into that arrangement. Um, it almost falls into that category of wanting to be happy. We, we want, we're going to have a, this child, um, and, and it just messes everything up. Um, David, of course, with Bathsheba uh, as well. Look at the result of his children after that. You know, we might we might just sit on that point just for a second. Mentioned earlier that we do see God putting up with men having multiple wives, and even to some extent incorporating that into the law uh, in terms of inheritance and that sort of thing. But it, through what's called leveret marriage. But here's the thing. The Bible seems to go to some pains to give us a picture of how well that works, and it's not well. 
whenever you see a picture of, of <laughs> Abram with his two wives uh, or Jacob with his four wives, or yeah. it's, it's not a good situation. Hannah and Penina in uh, 1 Samuel. That's right, Elkanah's wives. Yeah. And so just the need to get back and humble ourselves and say, what is God's design? Because it certainly is not working in our society. Um, and the culture shift is, is not making things better. Uh, you know, by confusing uh, men and women, uh, confusing the roles within the marriage relationship, uh, no, none of that is making our society stronger uh, or healthier in, in any regard. What we need to do is just step back and say, okay, we need to, we need to come back to God's plan. And we're not going to change it for the nation, certainly not overnight, but maybe not ever. But what we can do is say, in my household, what, how am I going to function? Um, what, how am I going to teach my children? So is it realistic, though, Joe, if I'm just thinking of, about my household, is it realistic for young people who think about getting married to suppose that they uh, can find that one person on the entire earth that they are meant to be with for life? Isn't it more likely that they're going to have to go through some trial and error, live with this person for a while and try that out? and then live with this other person for a while until they find that one person on the earth they were meant to be with? Well, I, I think <laughs> it's almost hard to even know where to start with that. <laughs> I, I hope you'll start by shooting down several of the premises that went into yeah. that question. So, so, so let, me, let me answer that from, uh, from one vantage point uh, in the, the story of uh, Isaac and Rebecca. Um, uh, you know, it, it's not that he that love at first sight and that sort of thing. And uh, the idea is that a wife was chosen for him and they're going to make that work. Um, I, I think that, that there's a, a, a principle that needs to be understood is that if it is a godly person marrying a godly person, uh, you know, a, a man and a woman that are seeking after the Lord's will, there's not just one person out there for you. Um, uh, I, it, that, that's, that's not something that's taught in scriptures. No, you can't find the idea in the Bible. That there's one person who I was meant to be with. What, what happens is two people create a relationship, and they do it by both of them following God's word. And what, what is meant to be is two people working together to love one another and create a marriage relationship as God designed. That's what's meant to be. It's, it's not that I have to wait around and, or try out different people. Oh, nope, you're not it. I've spent three months with you. I know you're not it. I'll go find somebody else. That's not a biblical pattern. Right. That's not a biblical process. You know, and uh, I think this is something that, that especially in Christian culture, we need to get down that your marriage is not about you. Uh, it is, but it is ultimately about God. And in that relationship, being able to glorify God. And unless both parties, even if they're Christians, they don't understand that fact that, that marriage given by God is meant to glorify him, then there's going to be some problems down the road. Um, your, your marriage has the potential to glorify God if you will both submit to each other and ultimately submit to the Lord. In fact, uh, great, great point, Chase. Uh, just this last weekend, I uh, had a chance to attend a wedding 
Um, and the officiant of, of that wedding um, uh, uh, was uh, Jeff's father-in-law um, uh, and made some excellent points uh, in the, that wedding uh, in talking about to the, the young man and the young woman there and encouraging them to think about how th- what this union is going to allow them to do is to bring their two lights together to uh, shine and to glorify God uh, in a more uh, brilliant way. Uh, you know, I, I don't remember what his exact words were, but it, it impressed me to, to think about it from that vantage point. Here were two lights in the world, and now they were going to come together as one and, and work in the, Lord's, uh, in the Lord's kingdom to glorify him. Yeah. The attitude for marriage. Yeah, and any parents listening, encourage your kids to think that way when they're seeking a spouse. Is that is the person they're seeking and finding and, and looking to date, do they also want to glorify God in a relationship? Good yeah. point. Jeff, I'm giving you a chance there to say something really nice about your father-in-law, but... Uh, uh, Jeff, you don't have the audio on. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't catch what all you were saying there. I was trying to catch up with a viewer's comment. This is interesting. Um, somebody sends this comment in. I like what J.R. Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien said about marriage and soulmates. And then here's the quote, uh, which our viewer submits from J.R.R. Tolkien. When the glamour wears off or merely works a bit thin, they think they have made a mistake and that the real soulmate is still to find. And of course, they are, as a rule, quite right. They did make the mistake. Only a very wise man at the end of his life could make a sound judgment concerning whom amongst the total choices he ought most profitably to have married. Nearly all marriages, even happy ones, are mistakes in the sense that almost certainly in a more perfect world or even with a little more care in this very imperfect one, both partners might have found more suitable mates. But the real soulmate is the one you're actually married to. Um, I'm confused. Okay, go ahead. Oh, no, I'm just, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around what, what's being said there. So what are your all's thoughts? I think, what, I think what that quote is saying is it's a mistake to think that I'm going to find one person in the entire world that I'm supposed to be married to. Right. Rather, what you do is you marry someone and someone marries you, and neither of you are the perfect person. For it, in, in either of your cases, your spouse could have found someone my wife could have found somebody who would have been a more suitable mate than I. Um, but what happens is that you are, you become the soulmate of one you're married to, and then you make that work. I think that's the point that's being made there. Uh, you yeah, and, and, about, and the greater mistake is when things get rough is to then go and look for somebody else. Yeah. And when, right. when you enter, when you enter a marriage in thinking, Oh, well I just settled then you're going to go through the marriage thinking, oh, well, I can find someone better. And, and that's obviously highly of yourself when you do that. Yeah, uh, that's very but, true. But there's, there's this thought, too, uh, in the idea of the person I marry, I'm not perfect. The person I marry is not going to be perfect. But we work to build each other up and help each other. We're going to talk about, I think today, the idea that God uses marriage to represent he uses the relationship between a husband and his wife to represent the relationship between God and his people, between Christ and his church. Now you think about what we see here. Uh, there's a passage in Ezekiel 16 that pictures God looking at, at his people 
as a as a, a young woman who at first before she's ready for marriage uh, is is this neglected infant child that has to be bathed from its blood and that kind of thing. And then it's a woman whom he beautifies. We come to the New Testament and there's this picture, God commends his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So here is the, the groom, Christ. He's going to take his people as his church. To do that, he has to give us himself as a sacrifice to cleanse the church. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, having cleansed it and sanctified it with the washing of water and the blood, I didn't get that quite quoted right, uh, he now honors the church, and, and, and it's, the church can be presented as a glorious bride. It's not that God went throughout the world and sought who are some really good people that can be the church. It's that God took people who were sinful, and he made them beautiful, and and maybe that's a better way to think of marriage than finding the one person out there who's the perfect soulmate is two people committing to one another and helping one another be better people. Very good. Very good. So why don't we go ahead and turn our attention a little bit to uh, that, uh, that concept of this spiritual marriage that the Bible deals with. And uh, those that are listening in, if you have some comments about things we've already talked about or about the, the husband-wife relationship, please uh, feel free to, uh, to bring us back to that with your comments. Um, but recently I was talking with my son, Noah, and, uh, he was preparing a, a lesson to, uh, to give. And, uh, he made some observations from Genesis two that I hadn't really thought, uh, as enough about. And I just wanted to share those a little bit this afternoon in understanding the importance of marriage. And we see that from the beginning to the end of scriptures, um, God is the one who instituted marriage, designed marriage. Uh, he approves or disapproves of marriages. Um, uh, think about Hebrews thirteen four, even. Um, but because you have that ideal, that spiritual marriage of God and his people, uh, Noah had called my attention to the passage there in Genesis 2, um, uh, in uh, verse 18, where the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. Um, and just thinking about that from the vantage point of a spiritual marriage, left to his own devices makes an utter failure of his life. It's not good for man to be alone. We need to enter into this marriage relationship with, with God. We need to submit to him. You, you mentioned Ephesians 5. Uh, talking about that husband-wife relationship, which is really, he's talking about Christ and the church. Um, uh, and so it, we need to understand it's not good for us to be alone, which, which again draws back to we can't let culture decide. We can't let our own uh, uh, pleasures or desires decide. We need to submit to uh, to the Lord. So, God says it's not good for man to be alone, and he, divide, he, dis, he defines marriage, or creates marriage, designs marriage, that's the word I'm looking for, as the solution to this problem. Um, There's so many different directions you can go with this, but, but one is that uh, when, when you're looking for companionship, don't just look for 
what is the mentality that leads people in the world today to shack up? It was an old expression we used to use. I guess we don't use it anymore because people would think of that as a pejorative and no longer is it considered uh, a bad thing to be living together. But people will, will live together. In fact, as a matter of fact, it's become expected today that you live together for a while before you get married. Um, how, do, how do we correlate that or how do we, how, how did, how, what's the contrast, contrast there between what is practiced in our society and this idea God says, it's not good for man to be alone. He creates the woman. He says, uh, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two become one flesh. It seems to me that in the Bible picture, the companionship comes with the marriage. The companionship doesn't precede the marriage. It's not an alternative to the marriage. I think that's exactly right. And so when a couple, when a, a, a man and a woman begin to uh, get ahead of themselves and um, uh, begin to enjoy one another in ways that they ought not or to um, live together, whatever the case, without commitment, uh, they're, they're destroying the very foundation of what God is wanting. Uh, they're wanting two people who are going to be committed to one another. And yet these two people are saying, well, let's try it out first. You know, let's take this for a test drive first. And of course that test drive is itself is selfish. When, I, I'm deciding whether I like this arrangement or not. When you go, when you go to buy a car, since you use the word test drive, when you go to buy a car, and you take it for a test drive. Have you committed yourself to to own this car and to do whatever you need to to keep this car running and to be reliable transportation? Have you committed yourself to it? Not at all. If there's something that you don't like about it, what's the easiest solution? Toss it. Take it back and yeah. Try try something different. Right. Well, when people take a, a, a person of the other sex for a test drive, we're going to live together for a little while and see what it, how, how that works. You're not committed. And, and as soon as there's something you really don't like about this relationship or about this person, the easy thing to do is to walk away from it. And so that, that's, that's not really a test of marriage because marriage is something different. Marriage is where you commit to this relationship and this person. And when there's a problem, you're, you're either going to work to eliminate the problem or you're going to say the relationship is worth the problem. <laughs> I, I think that's a good point. It might also make another comparison. I don't want to get too silly with any of these, uh, but uh, thinking about renting a car. Renting uh, a car? Yeah, renting. A, yeah. You, know, you go to Enterprise or someplace like that and you rent a car. Yeah. Generally speaking, what's, the, uh, what's sort of the uh, reputation when you when when people have rented a car, they don't treat that with the same respect as they would if it were theirs. Right. So a lot of people don't want to buy a car that's been on the rental market because it may not have been treated very well because the people who are driving it didn't really care that much about it. They didn't own it. Right. And and unfortunately, that's the way that many young men and and young women uh, treat relationships. Um, you know, this is just uh, we're we're just out having fun. And, uh, you know, I'm just uh, going to enjoy this for a while. 
and then you know I'll, I may get something, I may buy something later. Uh, I may make a commitment later on. I have a, a friend of mine. I may have used this in a previous uh, webcast. I don't know, but it's worth repeating. Uh, a friend of mine, Kim Neal, talks about that the idea that modern dating even is practicing for divorce. Uh, you know, the the idea that I can go into the way, do whatever I want, and then walk away whenever I want. Um, you know, and but but that everything about it is looking for my pleasure. Not surprising, you see people treat marriage the same way. So that's interesting that you bring up modern dating because we have, again, a viewer with a question. So what is a good age to let our daughters date? Well, uh, Isaac was 40 when Abraham found Rebecca. Jacob was about 70-something when he married um, Rachel and Leah. (laughs) Uh, Those are passages that I would remind my daughter. (laughs) All right, but in all seriousness, um, should my 14-year-old daughter come home from school and tell me, oh, um, Johnny and I are dating, and I say, oh, that's wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Who's Johnny? Horrible. What, What you should say is, no, you're not. Uh, you know, uh, the, the, the reason to date is to be looking for, and whether you want to use date or courting or whatever, the reason that you are spending time with somebody of the opposite sex is to see, to understand what their commitment is, what kind of a person they are, if they are devoted to the Lord, uh, those sorts of things. And so until you're ready to get married, there is no reason to, to be dating or until you're at least close to be getting ready to get married. The, the, you know, when, when I was a kid, and this would be odd to people, but when I was a kid, you could get candy cigarettes. So the kids could pretend they were doing the adult thing. Back then, you know, it was portrayed smoking is an adult thing. And so the little kids could use candy cigarettes and pretend they're doing that. Right. When we start talking about, uh, I'm in a relationship. Uh, you'll have teenagers in posting on Facebook and you put your relationship. I'm in a relationship. I think what they're trying to communicate is, well, we're not really married like the, the adults do, the grownups do. We're, like we're kids, but we're paired off. Like nobody has a right to be with that girl except me. And nobody has a right to be with, no girl has a right to be with me except that girl. We, we belong to each other. You, be, you become belong in the Bible, people became betrothed when they made a promise, a commitment that they were going to marry. And then they married and they became one flesh sexually, emotionally, in their, in their living arrangements and everything. And they truly belong to one another. Um, what people are doing, what 14 year olds are doing when they post on Facebook, I'm in a relationship or, or we're dating as if we're a pair. It's kind of like those little candy cigarettes. It really is. Uh, that, that's a, it's a very good comparison. And, uh, and, and I remember wanting to be grown up before I was. Uh, but there's, there's a, a sense of, of innocence and uh, purity. That we need to not encourage our young uh, children, our young sons and daughters, to, uh, to become adults before they're ready to start doing adult things before they're ready. And I mean that in a, in a pure sense of the word being, being a grown up, let them be children without the pressures of, of those kinds of relationships. It's not healthy. 
Yeah, and and I, to the viewer's question, I don't know if there's an age to put on it. Again, I, I don't have children yet, so that's why I'm letting you guys talk. But I definitely think picking up on kind of what you guys are saying is you need to know your own daughter. Uh, I think it's just going to depend on who they are and what the parents think is best for her and in their best judgment. <laughs> there comes an age where our children are old enough. They are now looking for a spouse. They are looking for someone uh, that they can spend their life with, with. Until then, they they may be spending time in, in groups of young people. They may be spending time in large groups or small groups, getting to know people of the opposite sex and kind of learning how to relate to one another. Um, but there comes a point where your child is old enough that your son or your daughter is now thinking in terms, I want to get married. I want to find someone um, who I can share my life with. And when they, when you see your children at that point, when you say to yourself, okay, I think my child is old enough to start actively looking for somebody that they might spend the rest of their life with, then maybe. But before that, why would you have your child pairing off with somebody and saying they're an item? So, you know, we, we want to come back to the, the Bible for, for all of these answers. And so the, the question then becomes, uh, it, how is that sort of a relationship, biblically speaking, how is that spiritually healthy, helping them draw closer to God? Uh, and, and, and the fact is that it's not. Um, we, we don't see that as a, as a pattern uh, uh, sort of encouraging uh, that kind of flippant attitude toward uh, the uh, male-female relationship. We are about out of time this afternoon, so we'll have to uh, stop here. Uh, if you have more questions or comments, perhaps we can come back to this or a related topic uh, some other week. But thank you very much for your participation. Uh, Jeff or Chase, do you have anything before we close off? Nope. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, thanks for the comments from our viewers today. Yes, very good. Okay. God bless you all. Bye.